You don't need special gadgets to be a hero. With unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase everywhere, the Capital One Quicksilver card makes you the hero of every purchase. Whether it's headphones, a lounge chair, or even a well-deserved massage, whatever the Quicksilver purchase, you're the hero. No fighting bad guys, getting in epic car chases, or parachuting out of buildings required. Simple, isn't it? The Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Hey, everyone. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra, combining raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. Uh, With me, as always, is Charles W. Luscious Bryant. How's it going, Chuck? sounded funny the second time around. <laughs> Josh actually had to do two takes there, and to hear your name as Luscious twice in a row is very special. What did it do to you? Mm, made me feel luscious, I guess. Good. You are luscious. Bro. I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good. What happened to Luscious Jackson? Remember them? Yeah. They were good. They were around the same time as... Uh, um, good Beastie Boys. Yeah. Because they were all buddies. Yeah. Were they? Yeah. What's I think the other one of them one? produced uh, their album or something. She loved and Special Sauce. That's who I was thinking. I of. was a huge fan of them early on. Were you? Yeah, yeah. And then they got picked up, and you're like, Psst. nah. Just I, I think I just kind of lost interest after their third CD or something. Gotcha. Anyway, okay. Um, Chuck equals Luxus Jackson fan. <laughs> just, just in. Also, I'm thick tongued. Yeah. In case you hadn't noticed. People always ask if Josh eats things while we podcast, and that is not true. I know. It has a uh, a real uh, effect on my happiness. Yes. Good lead in. No, that's not the lead in. Okay. I was just trying to psych you out. Uh, the um, seemingly uniquely American tradition of killing Census Bureau workers has begun again in the uh, just ahead of the 2010 census, Chuck. Oh, are they, are they doing that now? <laughs> yeah. It's about that time. I didn't know. No one's ever knocked on my door. There was a guy named Bill Sparkman, a 51-year-old Census Bureau employee. Um, I think it, just a worker. Like, he was just getting work as a census taker. Right. Uh, they found his body uh, hanging from a tree near a cemetery. Oh, I heard about in that. In Kentucky. And the word fed was scrawled across it. Wow. Yeah. That's a new kind of hate crime. Yes. You, well, no, it's not new. F- census Bureau workers get killed every every really? census. Yeah, oh, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. It's weird. It's a weird thing to do, but... I hope they get paid well. Some people don't like their privacy being invaded. Right. Or their land being stepped on. You don't want to knock on my door, brother. Wow. <laughs> Chuck, jeez. Fed. Um, I can tell you a place where there are uh, census takers that probably will not be strung up in trees. Bhutan. Bhutan. You know, they had their first census just like four years ago. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Bhutan's been undergoing a lot of changes lately there, Chuckers. Big time. Um, in 2008, the king abdicated his throne uh-huh. in favor of a parliamentary democracy. Very popular That's king. huge. Yeah, beloved, you could say. Actually, right. he was the beloved son of a beloved king. Yeah. Um, and uh, he abdicated his throne 
in favor of a democracy because they determine that democracies make people happier than kingdoms do. So he wanted to make his small, uh, I think the census was 690,000 people. Is that it? Yeah, he wanted to make them happy. He did, and uh, he did so much so that uh, they've also, at the same time when they adopted a new constitution and a new form of government, uh-huh. they also adopted a pretty much a guiding principle for the country called gross national happiness. Awesome. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Remember yeah. that uh, listener mail from uh-huh. the girl who was clearly headed to Yale that, that this fall? Yeah, that she did the survey at her own school to find out how happy the uh, fellow students were? Yeah. Cool. The uh, the um, Bhutanese are into the same thing. You gonna try and pronounce his name? Yes, <laughs> the King Jigme Singe Wangchuk. I got the Wangchuk part definitely. They said you could call him Dragon King. Okay. They meaning uh, they called me up. The Bhutanese did. Then they <laughs> said you can just call him Dragon King. <laughs> they heard that we were doing this podcast. Indeed. Okay. Well, the Dragon King. Thank you for that. By the way. Sure thing. Um, Back in 1972, he came up with the idea of gross national happiness. Um, this probably sounds a, a, a lot like gross domestic product or gross national product, right? Right. And Which I'm gl- we've talked about before. I'm glad you pointed out in the article, too, that this isn't just uh, – it wasn't just a fluffy little happy thing they decided to do. They were really serious about it. Nor is it tongue-in-cheek like the right. five-day weekend, which we've also talked about, mm-hmm. right? This is th- – they've taken – well, well, we'll break this down. Yes. Okay? Basically, what the Bhutanese have done is come to a collective agreement that, number one, happiness is not just a response to external stimuli, like a new car right. or something like that. Sure. They've taken the decidedly more Buddhist approach to happiness that it comes from within, right? Which is a lovely sentiment, I think. That's, that's step one. It's easy for Bhutan to do it because they're a Buddhist country, right? Right. Um, peaceful. So step one was to say, all right, happiness comes from within. Mm-hmm. Step two is to say, okay, how do you achieve this happiness? Key. They actually did this survey over three months. I think it was 108 questions. And that was the second version. The first one was determined to be just way too long. Yeah, I saw some of those questions too. It was pretty cool. Like what, buddy? Well, I mean, I went to that, uh, what was the website? Grossnationalhappiness.com, mm-hmm. I think, actually. Or org. One of the two. Oh, is it? I can't remember. Is it an org? It may be. <laughs> uh, I can't remember what the questions were. I, I didn't know you were going to put me on the spot like this. But there were things like, how do you feel about, uh, or how much rest do you get when you perform certain tasks, and how does this make you feel about your family? Uh, just things like that. So what they came up with, Chuck, was a basically nine guiding principles toward happiness, right? Yes. I actually have them here. I do, too. Oh, really? <laughs> Touche. Yes, yeah, so that means uh, touch in French. Um, what are they, Chuck? Because I can't find mine. Jerry loves that joke. Uh, time use, living standards, uh, good governance, psychological well-being, mm-hmm. community vitality, right. culture, health, and education, ecology. Okay. Or those are two, I think, education and ecology. So basically they figured out that these are the nine things combined – that make a happy life, right? I could dig that. And I mean, some of them sound a little obtuse, like psychological well-being. What is that, right? Um, basically, what they've they've come up with is you can't just say, "Hey, how how, how happy are you?" Scale of one to ten, or seven. would you say are, seven? Sure, that's not bad. Um, would you say that you're more happy 
less happy or just as happy as you were last year. Like the the Bhutanese pretty much immediately threw this out the window. They said right. that this is just it's too imprecise, mm-hmm. and we have to uh, turn this into a metric system, a system of, of metrices. Right? Is that right? Metrices? Sure. Okay. <laughs> they wanted to quantify it. Yeah, very much so, because they're, like you said, they're very, very serious about this, right? right? So, um, let's say, let's take psychological well-being. They, they took these guiding principles and then they broke them down by indicators, right? Mm-hmm. So you have an indicator like the prevalence of, um, negative emotions like jealousy or frustration or selfishness. Mm-hmm. The prevalence of positive emotions like um, generosity, compassion, calmness, right? Right. And um, that r- those right there are indicators that when you compile them all together in a survey, you have an impression of the psychological well-being of right. the household that's being taken in the census, right? Could you imagine our country ever doing anything remotely close to this? No, and the reason why is because we, just like the Bhutanese recently said we're going to collectively agree that we want to focus our 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 national focus on happiness sure the the US a long time ago actually around world war 2 when the gmp was first introduced uh-huh. um we made a collective agreement that we want to focus on materialism right money money stuff yeah that's how we measure our um our well being in this country. Sure. And that's not to say that it's any worse or better um than Bhutan's idea. It's just radically different. And one of the reasons it is radically different is because in this country we don't tech we don't we don't tend to think of happiness as coming from within. It is like behavioral psychologists believe or a lot of them do mm-hmm. it, it's the a response a physiological response to an external stimuli right like money so we've stuff. said yeah so we've said we're going to go for the materialism route right and this is what's going to dictate our policies how much money do you have if you got a bunch of money you can go get your car and all that stuff so mm-hmm. let's figure out how to make a bunch of money for everybody in this country right, right. um and even if you on a an individual level don't agree with the concept of materialism. Mm-hmm. If you're in the U.S., you tacitly agree with it just by going to work every day. Right. The, or, whole, the whole point sure. of most of your waking life is accumulation of money. Right. Or you're looked at as a freak of nature if you are one of those people who decide to drop out and go live off the grid and uh, sow their own seed in the mountains. Sure. You're a weirdo in this country if right. you do that. Or if you die after three months, they make a movie about you and a book. <laughs> yeah. The bear guy? Who? I thought you were talking about Timothy Treadwell, the uh, grizzly bear. No, uh, I was talking about uh, Christopher McCandless. Oh, okay, sure. From uh, Into the Wild fame. Right, similar similar thing. The bear? I thought that was actually about a bear. No, Timothy Treadwell <laughs> was, a, was a bear enthusiast who went to live among the bears. Oh, and was killed by a bear, and right? And was killed and eaten by a bear. Yeah. What a way to go. So, Chuck, let's get back to how, how uh, Bhutan has made this quantified right yes so you've got uh we were talking about psychological well-being and then all these different indicators one of the other things that they've decided to do is to take um objective data Mm -hmm. as well as subjective data to evaluate just how much worth something has right right um i was reading pretty much a breakdown of the gross national happiness system that bhutan has by the the center for bhutan studies Uh it's pretty impressive it is 
Um, and what they've what they've said is so you've got like crime, mm-hmm. right? In the U.S., we have crime statistics, right? And then the FBI issues the uh, Uniform Crime Report every year, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it it gets kind of granular, like um, crime perpetrated by race, by gender, by age, what kind of crime. Yeah, it gets real granular. It does, but really, if you think about it, it's just a a statistic. Like, I shoot you, you die, that's one homicide. Right. Right? So what the Bhutanese do is they still have these crime statistics. They use crime data, but they, they take it a step further through these surveys and say, how safe do you feel? Right. Okay. I guess that's one of the perks of having a country of 690,000 people. Sure. It's a little I, more I guess doable. the census goes a lot faster. Sure. Um, but, but so that one, right? So the crime statistics taken with how safe the population re- self-reports feeling. Right. Uh, that would be part of community vitality. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, it makes sense. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. It's weird that it makes sense because really it's the opposite of the premise behind Gross domestic product or gross national product. Which is all material. But it uses a lot of the same um, model. But rather than money, it's going for right. happiness. You know, I it's think that was mind the key. boggling, actually. I think it's the only way they could have pulled this off if, is if, if they did use like a GDP model mm-hmm. instead of just kind of willy-nilly throwing some questions out there about happiness. Right. They actually said that in this breakdown of gross national happiness that like – you know, it's a great idea, but we had to quantify it or else it was just going to be useless. So right. they really went to town on it, right? So what they've done is uh, take these uh, nine guiding principles, right? Or and d- all dimensions? The is that what Dimensions, that's right. That's yeah. kind of cool. And uh, they, they've, they've broken them down into all these different indicators, right, that can be um, subjectively reported on. Right. And they've established a threshold, just like we use for poverty lines, right? So in the U.S., what is it? If you're an individual and you make like some some ridiculously low amount, like thirteen thousand dollars a year, right? You're you're below the poverty line. But if you make thirteen thousand and one dollars, you're above the poverty line. <laughs> exactly. Um, they they created thresholds um, for achievement, is is how they put it, um, to where, let's say. Uh, We'll go back to a scale just to make it easier. On a scale of one to ten, mm-hmm. um, four is the is the threshold for um, uh, general psych- psychological well being, right? Okay. So if you have if you say uh, yes to X number of questions on these indicators, right, and then they they add them all up, and your score is five. You've surpassed the threshold, but you're not put down as a five. Right. You're put down as a four. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh-huh. What they're what they're doing in that is that they have chosen to focus on building up the any deficits that turn up in gross national happiness. Right. Uh as opposed to um touting how happy the the happiest people actually are. Yeah, their goal is to to be a happier country. Right. So they have a lot of poor people there too. Like they're really being hard on themselves here. Like their gross national happiness, the most it could ever possibly be, uh-huh. if every single person in the country is happy at the same time, is one. Everything else is negative. Okay. So then they go focus on why it's negative, and they break it down much the same way like the FBI breaks down crime, right? Like by gender, by region, by um, by age, and then they can say, "All right, what can we do to make these people happier? What's lacking?" You see what I'm saying? I do. It's it's 
I, I don't. I hate. I hesitate to use the word crazy because I don't want anyone to get the impression that I'm. I'm casting any a doubt or dispersion on it. Right. But this is crazy. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, especially considering where they are. I, I mentioned the poverty line, or you did. Thirty-one percent of their country lives below the poverty line. Right. But in a Buddhist country, that doesn't necessarily mean these people are unhappy. Well, no, because they only have an unemployment rate of two point five. So. The material is not that important. No, they're working. Right, and I, I saw their uh, their big exports are their indu- their industrial exports are cement. <laughs> That's like their biggest industrial export. <laughs> and then wood products, and then agriculture is their big deal with uh, rice and corn and stuff like that. Okay, so what we just talked about is that they have a thirty uh, something percent, thirty one percent, thirty one percent live below the poverty line. But it's a Buddhist country, so they're big into the rejection of materialism, so that doesn't really matter. Or does it? One of the other things that the gross national happiness model that they've come up with serves as is a, is a, a framework for accountability for the government, right? So right. the government's like, well, we just all reject materialism, so um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're below the poverty line. If they enough people start self-reporting that they're actually unhappy and all these people happen to be falling below the poverty line – right? It, that's published for you know Buddha and everybody to see. Sure. And then all of a sudden you can point to the government and be like, you guys are wrong. You're making some incorrect assumptions, and we need to fix this over here. By if, making more money? If that's what possibly, the indicator yeah, was. Yeah, right? yeah. Because if you're dedicated to the happiness uh, collectively and individually of your population, then yes, it's going to turn up on this gross national happiness um, right. economic indicator or indicator, and uh, it's going to need to be fixed or else you just – been blowing smoke up everybody's right bottom keister yeah. uh do you know what their real gdp was actually i checked that out per capita what what would you guess if america is forty six thousand and change what would you think it would be there in bhutan three dollars <laughs> per year yeah no five thousand two hundred okay per capita gdp i can see that so they still i guess that's a, a world fact that you have to have they still have the GDP. Right. Oh, that's an excellent point, Chuck. The reason that they, they instituted gross national happiness is because they, I think the leaders kind of saw the writing on the wall. Like, right. you, you can only remain shut off for so long. And this is very much a shut off kingdom. It's high up in the mountains between China and India. Yeah, on purpose. And they have, yes, very much so. They've isolated themselves. But the internet came in 2001. Mm-hmm. TV showed up in 1999. And it brought with it these Western influences. Right. So what the leaders said, rather than, you can't have TV, you can't have Internet, they said, okay, we're, we'll enter the world stage, but we're going to do it on our own terms, Which is, and this is this is how we're going to do I it. I applaud it. Right. So let's get to the point there, Chuckers, as to whether or not Bhutan's actually onto something. Like there, so. there. This is an age-old question. Like, is money... More important than happiness, can money buy happiness? Well, let's talk about some some studies, not necessarily ones conducted in Bhutan, but just in general. Like, does money provide happiness? I think if you were just to talk about Bhutan, though, you'd be uh, you'd find out pretty quick that five thousand two hundred dollars a year that they uh, is their GDP. Mm-hmm. They're probably pretty happy. And if you talk to your average American, they might not be as happy. That's just a guess. Agreed, but the GNH will turn that up sure. eventually, right? They'll they'll turn the frown upside down. Right. <laughs> Actually, Chuck, the uh, Bhutanese census takers aren't the only people who go around asking people if they're happy. I know who you're talking about. Who am I talking about? The World Values Survey. That's right. 
Um, they ask people how happy they are, and they've been doing it for a long time. It's since 1981, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, they usually ask about 350,000 people uh, in 97 countries. And they ask two in questions. In each country, they ask that many? No, or the, their whole um, survey population is 350K. Okay. Gotcha. Um, they, they ask two questions. You ready? Taking all things together, would you say you are very happy, rather happy, not very happy, not at all happy? That's one question. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole these days? And that's it. It's a two-question survey. Right. And then they rank countries. In 2008, the uh, happiest country on the planet was Denmark. I could I could believe that. The U.S. ranks 16th, right? I could believe that. But if you look, uh, according to the CIA, if you look at um, per capita GDP, mm-hmm. the U.S. was, I think, number eight, number five or another, number eight in 2008. With, Denmark, with that 46 grand? Uh-huh. uh-huh. And then Denmark was number 30. So they're the happiest country, but they don't make nearly as much money as the okay. U.S. So no the, correlation there. Uh, but the, the, not necessarily. There's a lot of criticism of the uh, World Value Survey. I'm sure. Um, it's number a two-question survey. Somebody pointed out, number one, uh, that you – how do you translate happiness from we, – we, you and I can't even describe – what real happiness is necessarily right we could possibly anecdotally but it's so mm-hmm. subjective absolutely number one how can you and i who have so much in common not establish what happiness is that that you can also spread it out over 97 countries and all these different societies mm-hmm. and groups within it yeah so that's that's number one um number two uh, I read an article that pointed out that yeah, Denmark um, is the happiest country in the world. It also leads the world in per capita alcoholism and suicide. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I understand the alcohol part. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Suicide. Yeah, that doesn't add up. No, it doesn't. So, Chuck, is it, it's becoming evident just what a responsibility, what a, a task Bhutan is taking on its own shoulders, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, happiness is really tough to quantify, and they've done a great job trying to figure that out, but... Yeah, I know they do the studies, and you pointed to one in your uh, article, your fine, fine article, about... Really? I didn't... I, I thought it was okay. Meh. Uh, about, um, they always study lottery winners. Yes, I love this. And they always compare study. them to amputees, which I just I find odd. No, it was just a very famous one that started it. Is that what it is? Yeah. It's, okay. It's, like, is happiness relative? Well, and then what did they find out that after... The initial uh, joy of the lottery wore off that mm-hmm. people kind of generally, and the same with the amputee, mm-hmm. they generally go back to where they were before. Yeah, if you look at it as like a line, a uh-huh. horizontal line, uh, and the event happens at the same time, somebody loses their leg and another person loses the, or wins the lottery. Right. The lottery winner goes up, the amputee goes down, but after three years, they both go back to that same line. Sure. Which is kind of startling if you think about it yeah and you also made the point about money which i thought was a really good point is dichotomous so money can bring many things money can bring happiness and cool stuff and security and it can also uh be the the evil in your life it can be i mean that that security you've got financial security but maybe you're a little more worried that your you know house is going to be invaded Right. For during a robbery or something. Yeah. The the point with pursuing happiness that I think the Bhutanese are hip on is that happiness only brings happiness. Good point. That's yeah. awesome. Um, there was another study by a couple of guys from Princeton et al. Um, <laughs> and uh, they basically used something called a day reconstruction method. Okay. Which is self-reporting. 
But you know, self-reporting. Sure. It, it flies in the soft social sciences, but that's about yeah, it. a little hinky. Um, but basically they it asked people to um, write down their experiences that, that from the previous day. Okay. And then do that over a set period of time, right? <laughs> I'd love to see mine from like yesterday. That'd be great. Oh, yeah? Were you in a bad mood yesterday? No, just... Were you drunk? No, uh, they wanted, they're charting your mood or what you did and how it corresponded to I your mood. I think both. Yeah, I'd love to. I've, we, we should do that. You want to do it? it? <laughs> no, no I don't either. <laughs> um, what these guys found was that when you when you ask people to report on their mood, right, mm-hmm. as it happens or a uh, day after it's happened, and then you evaluate it by income, they found that actually money did indeed um, bring happiness to a certain extent, right? Right. So the point is, is I think people who made t- under twenty thousand dollars a year are actually less happy than people who make a hundred thousand or more. Okay, that's a that's kind of a no brainer if you think about it. Yeah. Imagine the strife and struggle you you have in your daily life if you're making it's the struggle twenty thousand or it less, right? Yeah. Um, Even happy people, I think, can be beaten down by finances. Right. Generally happy people. Sure. Yeah. Um, but I, the the uh, what they did find was that. When you get to fifty thousand mm-hmm. to eighty nine thousand, that segment uh-huh. was virtually identical to people who made over a hundred thousand. Okay, which is kind of significant because there's a there's a substantial difference between fifty thousand and a hundred thousand. So what what they've kidding. concluded is that money does bring happiness to a certain extent by possibly by satisfying um, our needs. Right, but after that, it loses a, a lot of its value or a lot of the happiness it can bring. Once right. it reaches a certain point, once those needs are satisfied. Yeah, you know, when I worked in L.A., I worked with a lot of rich people, obviously, in the film industry. Mm-hmm. And it never really hit home to me until I left that I was always jealous of, of the amount of money like these commercial directors would make, insane amounts of money, dude. Yeah. Like $20,000 a day right. for their stupid TV commercials. I, I'm unimpressed because you've already told me that. Yeah, it's just amazing how much money they make, but... You you grow your lifestyle to fit your salary to a large degree. Not always. My friend, you were talking about the hedonic treadmill. So basically, they're... Uh, Wait, they, come they, on. Have you heard those two words put together before? Yeah, all the time. Oh, okay. I, don't you see my t-shirt? It's oh, yeah, it's treadmill. right there. Wow. Well, hedonic is on the what front. A silly, uh, what a silly drawing. I thought so, too. Yeah. Um, you grow to fit your... You, your, your lifestyle grows to fit your salary, sure. so... If you make $20,000 a day, your expenses, or, or let's say $30,000 a month, your expenses are going to be, you know, they're going to match that. I'm not saying this well. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Let's say, uh, let's say uh, an example I've read uh, in an article from the San Diego Union Tribune, which uh-huh. is a sterling article, actually, on happiness. It's called Pursuing Happiness. Um, this guy makes the example of um, winning the lottery and moving to uh, Rancho Santa Fe which I take as one of the nicer suburbs in San Diego. I guess so. Okay. Uh, he says that when you do that, you go from the how did I get this lucky type of happiness to living among similar wealth mm-hmm. so it becomes your normal everyday life. Right. It wears off. Sure. Another argument um, against money bringing happiness is that a lot of times it leads to um, poor choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently about 40% of our happiness, if you look at it in a pie graph, Right. Um, 10% is life circumstances. 50% is um, genes, genetic, they yeah, believe. Sure. And then 40% is our, our choices, the, the happiness or unhappiness our choices bring us. Right. And one of the points is like, okay, let's say um, commuting is 
almost across the board like one of our least favorite things to do right. as, as human beings, right? Um, but you make a bunch more money, so you move out to the suburbs mm-hmm. in a, into a bigger house, but you've also just doubled or tripled your commute time. Right. But then you buy the BMW 7 Series, so your drive is a lot sweeter, but yeah. then it costs $3,500 for the tune-up. Sure. It's all, it's all, it all comes out in the wash, you know? The point, I think, that you and I are inevitably going toward. Stumbling toward. Yeah. <laughs> faltering. Um, is that you just shouldn't take money quite so seriously. <laughs> That's good. I find it interesting, and in, we've set up a thing in this country where you can never go backward. It's all no, about we, going we talked forward. talked about that with the Peter principle. You, yeah, well, with money, though, too. Like when, um, like in a divorce case, you always hear the uh, whether it's a husband or the wife that's mm-hmm. rich and the, or the, the one that's asking for the spousal support. Mm-hmm. The point is always made, well, I've got this lifestyle now. Oh, and, yeah. and I need to get the, the $40,000 a month from you to, to stay at this lifestyle. Right. The thought of going back is just unthinkable in this country. It is. Money-wise. If you think about it, stockbrokers don't gen, don't um, tend to throw themselves out of windows when they make a bunch of money. Right. It's only when they lose it. Right. But, I'm, I mean, that's that's drastic. But <laughs> You think? why? I mean, why can't you just, uh, you know, all right, I'm going to take a job that pays less, and I'm going to have a little less. Some people make this choice. You know life. what? I think some people do, and I would like to hear from them. Anybody who's made that decision, write us and tell us, are you happy? And what you did. But the courts support it with that divorce thing. They think, well, no, you've got this lifestyle and you must stay at that level. You cannot drop your lifestyle whatsoever. Right. And that is, that definitely does um, underscore our, our, that social agreement that materialism is what we're into. Yep. So, yeah. Well, uh, let's see. Since I said materialism is what we're into, that means that uh, I should tell you to go to howstuffworks.com. You can type in gross national happiness in our handy search bar, and you might also want to read another article on the site, um, Can Money Buy Happiness? Right. Which means what, Chuck? Actually, I got just one more quick thing. You know, there was an <laughs> oh, earthquake. You just totally threw me off. <laughs> there was an earthquake in Bhutan on Monday. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah. Everybody okay? 6.3. They've, uh, 12 people at least are dead. Oh. And that wrecked a bunch of, you know, ancient monasteries. And, uh, yeah, which are like built on the mountainside. Yeah. So I imagine they came tumbling down. It's very sad. Yeah, that is sad. So I just wanted to say hello. If we have any fans in Bhutan, we might have one fan in Bhutan. Yeah, the internet is there. It is. All right, well, uh, with that sad news, I guess it's time for listener mail. It is listener mail, Josh, and this is uh, just a couple of quick shout-outs. This came from Amelia, and Jerry thought it was a good idea to plug it, so we will. Um, it's a website called freerice.com. Oh, yeah. And apparently what you do there is you go online at this website and you answer vocabulary questions. And it's like a game. You play these games where you answer trivia questions mm-hmm. and uh, participate. And when you get these questions right, they donate rice yeah. to uh, the needy around the world. So it's like a little interactive way, I guess, of getting people involved. And uh, 10 grains of rice per correct answer. And... Um, the website today said over 68 billion grains of rice have been donated to date. Can't you them. imagine the poor slob whose job it is to count out every <laughs> single one of those grains of rice? It may be symbolic. Uh, maybe not. You think? No. <laughs> You're staring blankly. <laughs> so thanks, Amelia, for that, and that is a worthy cause indeed. And then I wanted to give a special shout-out to Ben, our listener from uh, 
University of Wisconsin at Madison. Mm-hmm. Ben and I have been writing. He, at the age of 20, was diagnosed with uh, a form of leukemia that I cannot pronounce. He said it's evidently the good kind, <laughs> even though after hearing what he's been going through, it doesn't sound like it. Uh, they were going to have a bone marrow transplant for Ben, but they could not find a match in 11 million uh, person database. And so he has been approved. This chemotherapy, uh, or, I'm sorry, radiation worked, and he is going to have an umbilical cord blood transplant. Wow. And he's been traveling, I think he said something like 80 miles each way every day for like a two-minute radiation. And he's been listening to our podcast, which is why he wrote in. And that's been uh, helping him out. And we just and Ben's a really cool guy, dude. His attitude is like leaps and bounds ahead of ours. His outlook on life is it? Yeah, it was one of those perspective shots where Ben is just and he's like, "Oh man, don't feel bad for me," because I told him I felt really awful about it. Yeah. He said, "You know, I didn't picture this as my life, but it's what I've been dealt, and uh, I'm dealing with it, and everything's <laughs> wow, everything's going to be okay." And uh, nice. So he was approved for the. Uh, he was admitted last Wednesday for the transplant, and it's a six-week hospital stay and then a two-year recovery period. And he said that uh, the one thing that he's loved is our podcast and hydromorphone he's become fond of, which is uh, with the painkiller they've been giving him. Oh, okay. And he said that he found out later heroin addicts use it as a substitute because it has similar effects. Heroin addicts will use anything as a substitute. Sure. And uh, so, Ben, we hope you're well. Yeah, we hope ben, you're listening. Our thoughts are with you, obviously. We'll and be pulling uh, for you, please keep us posted, huh? Yeah, he will. Cool. Well, you keep me posted, will you? I will. You kind of have a lockdown on the information that comes in. I do. I control the information. Uh, remember, we want to hear from you if you've decided to take a giant step backward out of the rat race and um, how your life's going. Mm-hmm. You can send us an email to stuff podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.